welcome to Big Happy Life, the show that's all about making conscious choices about your habits so that achieving your goals becomes easier and more fun and you feel happier along the way. I'm your host, Natalie Britt, and can you believe it? It's episode 20. So first of all, a great big thank you to all the subscribers and all of you who've listened to all 20 episodes. And second, a reminder that this forms part of the Goals and Habits series. It's episode three of six, and in it, we actually talk about habits, what they are, how they form, why they form, and therefore what you potentially need to consider when you want to start a new habit or change an old one. It's kind of funny that we should be getting to this point at episode 20, considering that the basis of the show is to make conscious choices about your habits. The good thing about putting the episode here is that if you've listened to the earlier episodes, you have some foundational pieces about understanding the power of the subconscious mind and how it can completely derail you without knowing. You'll know a little bit about your beliefs and how they shape your actions. You'll know a little bit about decision fatigue. You'll know a little bit about goal setting. So when you place knowledge about habits into that infrastructure, it's much more powerful than understanding habits on their own, but not necessarily thinking about the domino effect that habits have in your life, either positive or negative, how they affect beliefs, how they affect health, how they affect energy and focus, how they affect decision making, and therefore how they ultimately affect everything in your life. If I asked you now to think about all the things in your life that you believe are habits, What kinds of things would you put on that list? How long would the list actually be? If the mood takes you, you could stop this recording and make that list now to see what's on it. I'm guessing you'd have things like having a shower in the morning, maybe brushing your teeth, um, getting dressed, possibly other parts of morning routines when you might shave or eat breakfast and so on. So you'd probably pick up on the things that you notice you run routinely. For most of us, that's how we traditionally look at habits. They're the little routines that we run. What we fail to notice is the habitual nature of almost every decision we take. Habitual thought processes. Habitual reactions to things that seem inconsequential. Things we probably wouldn't even pay attention to, but are taking us away from other things. Habitual reactions to people, relationships, comments. Habitual use of language. Things you say regularly to yourself or to other people. Honestly, they're absolutely, and that's what makes this episode so important. Because understanding how prevalent your habits are and how dramatically they affect the results you get in your life makes it really worthwhile paying attention to them and making conscious choices about them so that they serve you really well. So I've already said in this episode we're going to talk about how they form and why they form, but we're also going to talk about two particular types of habits, conscious and unconscious. We'll start with unconscious habits because those are the ones we're traditionally aware of. All those brushing teeth, making bed, having a shower, all those sorts of things are unconscious habits. Even though you're consciously aware of doing them, the program that actually runs them is taken care of by the subconscious. It doesn't require conscious thought. To explain that, let me just backtrack for a second and tell you a little bit about the research into habits. There's loads of really cool research available on habits and what the brain is doing when a habit forms. So I've included a couple of links in the show notes page to some of the most popular research. But the one I want to tell you about here helps illustrate the point really clearly, even though the research was done with rats. The research I'm going to tell you about here features in Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, which is one of my favorite books on this topic. And I would highly recommend you take a look if you're interested in knowing more. In the early 90s, researchers at MIT were wondering whether or not they had actually discovered the kind of root of where habits exist in the brain. And so this research was designed to test that. 
The part of the brain they were looking at is called the basal ganglia. And if you imagine the brain to be a bit like an onion, so the center part and then layer after layer after layer, the outside layers are the newest parts. They're the bits that have evolved for us much later on, whereas the central pieces have been there a lot longer and are very similar to the brains we'd find in other mammals and also rodents and even to some extent fish. So it makes sense that habits would be housed in these much deeper parts of our brain because you can see that there's habitual behaviors in the animal kingdom as well. So it makes sense that if our brains have kind of commonality of structure and functioning, that those deeper parts of our brains would run in a similar way. So doing research on rats potentially gives us good information about what's happening in our brains. And that is in fact what later research has gone on to confirm. In this MIT experiment, what the researchers did was place probes in the brains of the rats so that they could test the neural activity, and then they set them up with a maze. Imagine it to be like a tea, and there was chocolate at the left-hand side of the tea. So what the rat had to do was first enter the base of the tea, and there was a little door they had to go through, and then run up and turn left to get to the chocolate. In the first few attempts, the rats seemed to run around a little bit haphazardly, and then they'd stop, and they'd sort of sniff around. In some cases, they might double back or stand still for a while, but there was no real pattern to the movements. But what the researchers found was that the spikes in their thought processes were very high. They were constantly processing information through their senses. They knew the chocolate was there, but they couldn't find it. So they were on high alert with all senses firing and paying really close attention. So that brain was really lit up with activity. It's interesting because what you'd imagine as the rat kind of stands still and appears to do nothing is that the neural activity would be lower. But in actual fact, to the naked eye, just looking at the rat, you'd think nothing is going on, but their brains were firing constantly. But once they got used to the maze and they knew where the chocolate was, something really interesting happened. Their movements became purposeful, but the neural activity decreased so dramatically that it replicated sleep. They simply didn't have to think anymore. It wasn't a requirement in order to achieve the goal. All they had to do was run the routine. Now, if you're a driver, you'll have experienced something similar yourself. When you first learned to drive, you would have had to pay attention to absolutely everything. Your neural pathways would have been lit up all over the place because you were consciously aware of every aspect of the driving experience. But if I were to test your brain activity a year or two years or five years after learning to drive, what I'd find is that the neural activity required is far lower. Your movements are more purposeful, your confidence is greater, it looks far better than the learner experience, but the brain activity is dramatically reduced. Basically, your brain has become efficient in dealing with that process. The belief is that your brain has done something called chunking. It has put different pieces of information together as a chunk, and then that chunk gets handled as one thing. So if you imagine you're making a cake, you've got flour, eggs, sugar, baking powder, and whatever else you need for that particular recipe. But then once it's baked, it's chunked together as one thing, which is the cake. It's far easier to manage, it's far easier to transport, it's far easier to access and deal with. It's just more efficient than having all of those separate ingredients. A chunk of brain information is exactly the same. The trouble is, if we went back to that cake and I said to you, oh, I meant to put self-raising flour in and I put plain flour in, can you just take the plain flour out? It's simply not an option. With habits, we can still access those individual ingredients, but it's really quite difficult to do because most of them are held in the subconscious and the chunk is definitely held in the subconscious. 
And what we also know now is that you can change a habit, but the existing one stays in place. And what I mean by that is the chunk remains. What you create is a new pathway. So imagine it like a motorway, a really, really busy motorway, and you create a toll road motorway that runs parallel. So now you have a better version of that road. It's less congested, it's more free-flowing. You like it, it's great. It doesn't mean the other one disappears. So at any point, you could go back to the old one if you chose to do so, or if other circumstances led you to go back to that road. So what ends up happening is new neural pathways are created to support the new habit. They don't overwrite the old ones. The old ones don't disappear. They just lie there dormant, but they could be reactivated at any point. So if you've ever known a smoker who gave up for a year or two years and then started smoking again, that's exactly what happened. A single journey on the old road reopened the road and it then meant that they stayed on it time and time again. But you may find yourself thinking, but why would they do that? They've been smoke-free for two years. Why would they go back to smoking? When they really don't want to and they know it's bad for their health, they've already clearly demonstrated that they could do without it. Why go back? And this is where it helps to understand the ingredients within the chunk. Again, you can find loads of detail about this in Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. And you'll also find some great links on the show notes page to more information if you want it. Duhigg describes the chunks as made up of three parts. The cue, the routine, and the reward. The cue could also be referred to as the trigger. It's the thing that starts the cycle. It's the thing that says, get on the road and off you go. Of course, we also know that once the cue is activated, neural activity decreases and the routine is run automatically. Many people who've experienced eating disorders talk about feeling like they're in a trance. Once they feel triggered, there's this sense of no longer being in control. And that's what's happening, that the initial part of the chunk has been activated and the routine is wanting to run. So the subconscious mind knows the next thing is the routine and that will lead to the reward. I want the reward. Let me run the routine. Back in episode four, we know what to do, so why don't we do it? I talked about the rider and the elephant. This chunking process all resides with the elephant. So in that example I've just given, the rider may be saying, I don't want to do this. But for the elephant, that first part of the chunk has already started and now the routine is ready to go. And because the elephant is so much more powerful than the rider, it's incredibly difficult to turn it around. We'll talk about strategies for doing that in later episodes in this series. But this episode is really about taking the chance to think about what those chunks are in your life and where they might be. So let's go a little bit deeper in and look at cues, the things that trigger the routine to run. To help illustrate this, I'll use an example from my own life, which is drinking alcohol. If you read my blog, you know that I'm taking 100 days off alcohol as a little experiment to see what that does to my energy and my focus, and also get a sense of how that changes what I feel capable of and what I believe about myself. So one of the big cues for me was time of day. And this cue developed in large part because of a phrase I heard a lot from other people. And that was five o'clock's wine time, or when you're on holiday, eh, it's five o'clock somewhere in the world. I really quite liked that because it made me feel part of something. People I know and love use that phrase. They're probably also opening a bottle of wine right now. So even though we're not together, it kind of makes me feel like we're together. So there was all kinds of stuff wrapped up in that cue with one of the main things being an emotional state, a desire to feel connected to people I love. But other emotional states could have also acted as triggers, and often did. Sometimes amazing things would happen and I'd be elated and want to celebrate. 
Sometimes I'd feel deflated and want to commiserate. And emotional triggers are one of the most common for kind of coping strategy type habits. These include food, smoking, alcohol, drugs, all those kinds of things almost always contain at least one emotional state cue. Other cues that can trigger a routine include things like location. So if I stick with my example, going to the pub is likely a place where I would associate having a drink. So when I'm now in the pub, it's time for having a glass of wine or I'm on holiday. So I'm sitting by this beautiful beachside cafe. I've got the sun on my skin. I'm feeling relaxed. So the experiences that I'm sensing, the things I'm seeing, the way my skin feels, the things I'm hearing around me, as well as the location, can all act as triggers. So you can see with a habit you've had for a long time or that's had multiple opportunities to set up different cues that will trigger it, there can be loads of different things that would cause you to end up running that particular routine. So let's just look at those again. So the triggers include things like time of day, location, other people, the sounds, smells, tastes that you're experiencing through your senses. And another cue can also be particular actions. So if actions run in a specific order, like if you have a morning routine, you do one thing, then you do the next thing, then you do the next thing. So one action triggers another, triggers another. And the final one is emotional state. You feel an emotion, you run the routine. And that's the specific behavior you associate with the habit. So whatever the habit is, is the routine. That's the process that runs. Now it could be a thought process, it could be a behavior. There are all kinds of different routines. Shouting at your children, storming off when your spouse says something you don't like, eating a piece of cake at your desk at three o'clock in the afternoon. All of these things are the routines. And with the routine comes a reward. You experience something that the elephant, the subconscious, wants. And this is the challenge with some of the habits that actually create resistance in our lives, is that in some way, somehow, they are rewarding the elephant. Now, again, we've spoken about this a little bit in previous episodes, and the links to those episodes are included in the show notes. But the important thing to know is that every single habitual routine is in some way rewarding. Now, as a friend of mine once said, humans are profoundly weird. So a lot of the things that seem rewarding can be incredibly counterintuitive. For example, when my husband and I did our training as part of the adoption process, one of the things we learned about was that as children begin to settle and as they begin to feel safe and loved and nurtured, they are much more likely to act out because a protective instinct in them kicks in. It's incredibly scary for them to let themselves go and feel that love in case it gets taken from them. So the emotional state of fear triggers a routine which is to act out and ultimately end up pushing people away. And the reward is self-protection. So although you would think the ultimate reward would be that sense of belonging, that sense of safety, nurturing and love, the fear that's also wrapped up in that can mean that that counterintuitive behavior actually feels more rewarding because it's safer. Again, we have to remind ourselves that when these kinds of behaviors are running, not a lot is happening consciously in terms of decision-making and troubleshooting and checking assumptions and testing beliefs. It's a simple case of activation sequence, go. 
Of course, when we're talking about things like childhood trauma, it's easy to see how those counterintuitive behaviors can take root. But we don't always think about it in adults. We don't think about it in terms of difficult relationships at work or substance abuse or other situations where it's kind of easy to look at the habit and think, why are you doing that? It makes no sense. But the same things are happening. Something is cueing or triggering the behavior, and that is leading to some kind of reward for the subconscious, the elephant. And because the subconscious or the elephant is so much more powerful, so much faster than the conscious mind, it becomes really hard to think your way out of it. So even when you consciously know you want something else, unless you can offer the elephant the same reward or a better reward than the existing habit, it's going to be really difficult to stop it from running that sequence. That's what the next three episodes will be about. But for now, there's one other thing I want to share with you, and that's about conscious habits. This is kind of new to my repertoire and it's blown my world apart in a good way. I spent so many years thinking about habits as being these activation sequences and routines, cue, routine, reward, that I was constantly looking for ways to kind of embed things in my subconscious so they would run automatically. Things like my morning routine, including meditation, exercise, and a variety of other things that I felt would kind of empower me and help me propel my life to the next stage. It was only when I started reading Brendan Bouchard's book, High Performance Habits, which I've mentioned before, that this idea of intentional habits took root. Although, to some extent, because any kind of habit change requires you to think about it consciously and make some choices, arguably any habit change is therefore intentional. But this was something different. So I knew about the intentional side of changing a subconscious habit or a routine, but what I hadn't thought about was the fact that when you are dealing with habits in the conscious mind, it responds to different things. It likes novelty and challenge and interest. So trying to turn everything into routine isn't actually that exciting. And so it's hard to stay intentional and it's hard to perform at your highest level if you don't also think about creating novelty and interest and challenge in the way you go about things. Of course, two ways you can do that relate to the previous two episodes in this series. The way you set your goals and the way you align them with your values can help create that novelty and interest. And then you can start having intentional conscious habits that help play into those goals and values. And you can make them even stronger because you understand the structure of how a habit forms. So understanding that cue, routine, reward element, you know that in any kind of intentional habit, you need to have a way that you trigger it, the routine itself, and then experience some kind of reward as a result. A little footnote here, feelings as a reward work far better than things. So regardless of whether you are working on a conscious intentional habit, something you want to start, something that's going to propel you forward, or whether you're attempting to get underneath a routine or subconscious habit that's getting in your way, one of the biggest things and one of the best things you can do for yourself is to pay mindful attention to how you feel as a result. What's the reward you get from the thing you're trying to stop? How do you feel after you've done the intentional habit? If you're familiar with mindfulness practice, you'll know that that's basically what I'm describing here. That chance to slow down and pay attention to what you're experiencing. And this is a fundamental part of what I refer to as Team You. The better the communication becomes between your conscious mind, your subconscious mind, and your body, the higher quality information you end up with about how you feel and what reactions you create in your body and in your mind as a result of the things you do. 
And then once you know that, it becomes much easier to start having intentional habits or to start working out how to change a habit you no longer want, one that's actually creating more resistance in your life than it's worth. So to take an example again from my life, one of the things I'm doing as part of my morning routine at the moment is something called the Wim Hof Method, which is about deep breathing and then breath hold sequence followed by a cold shower. Now before, I was trying to build that into my morning in a way that made it feel routine, like I didn't have to think about it anymore. But now that I've been doing it every day for almost six weeks, it's embedded in my routine, but I'm not actually getting the same benefit from it as I did at the beginning. So now it's about turning it into some kind of intentional habit, adding some element of novelty and interest, something that reignites the pleasure in doing the activity in the first place. For me, I've decided to do a little bit more learning, a little bit more research into what's actually happening and why it works, because that will give me new information to start paying attention to when I do the practice, and that reignites novelty and curiosity. So when you find you're losing momentum with something that actually you are finding valuable and you are managing to stick to, but you can feel that you're beginning to lose commitment, the best thing to do is to look at adding some form of novelty. Consider the rewards and think about how do I make this more rewarding to myself, more enjoyable? And again, think about something that you will experience internally rather than something you buy. Because although you're doing this with the conscious mind, Everything in the conscious mind is run by the subconscious mind. So if you're going to get the elephant on board, you're going to do so through the way your subconscious mind experiences the reward. And for that reason, emotions, connection, other people, those kinds of things are far more likely to drive you towards a true sense of reward, which is what you need in order to keep that habit moving in the long term. If you'd like to take the information from this week's episode and apply it in your life, one of the best things you can do is consider a habit you'd like to change and just see if you can start paying attention to the kinds of cues that trigger it. Don't worry about stopping it. Forget about that part for now. At the moment, just pay attention to what starts it because in order to change it at a later stage, that's going to be information you need. Pay attention also to the rewards you experience. Is it a sense of control? Is it a sense of relaxation, connection, elation, energy? Anything you experience as a result of running that routine. Together those things become vital because in order to change an existing habit, the theory goes that you leave the cue and the reward in place and you simply substitute another routine that could be cued by the same thing and would feel rewarding in the same way. If you're looking to become more intentional in your habits, consider what would make them feel most rewarding. What are the feelings that would spur you on? Maybe think back in your life of things that have spurred you on in the past when you felt a particular way and that's energized you to keep going with something that actually was quite difficult to do or where your feelings made something feel easier, more fun, more right or worthwhile. With that information, you'll be really well set to make best use of the rest of the series where we focus on specific habits or habit practices that will allow you to make use of this information in such a way that it makes your goals easier to achieve and or more rewarding on the path. As always, if you've got comments or questions, you'll find the show notes pages at bighappylife.blog and you can leave comments there. Or you can reach me via the contact pages on bighappylife.blog and bighappylife.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you and know more about the habits you're starting or changing. But for now, thanks for listening.